Every commercial you turn on, it talks about the most wonderful time of the year, Reed. The minute Halloween was over, walk into a Starbucks and your swear at the North Pole. Just bang, all of a sudden. I know, Reed, on your Christmas list this year, you're probably expecting the Christmas tree cake stand from Miller Lite. Have you heard about this thing? I have not. You could store a keg of beer in a big metal basin with ice around it. And the, the basin is designed, as the ice melts, it waters your Christmas tree because your Christmas tree is mounted on a platform above your beer keg. I feel like this is more of a Thanksgiving thing. Did you put it inside of a turkey? Is it like a deep fried turducken? I feel like that's a better, better use. Basically. Better use of, of, of Miller Lite, that's for sure. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into digital tools, solutions, and strategies that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Thanks for joining us. Now, here are your hosts. Welcome, one and all, to episode number 305. I'm Reed Smith. That is Chris Boyer. Hey, Reed, how are you doing? I'm just over here enjoying an ice-cold beverage from underneath the tree. Maybe mimosas, maybe do mimosas for the morning. I don't know. Eggnog, maybe it's just a big thing of eggnog. Well, welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us again for another episode of Touchpoint. A couple of quick plugs before we jump into today's show. I think we've got a good, good uh, topic. I mean, it's, it's not a surprise. I mean, you've downloaded the episode, so you know this is about reputation. Excited to kind of jump into that. I know we've got kind of some thoughts. Before we do, touchpoint.health is the website. Again, touchpoint.health is the website. If you navigate over there, you can find a little bit more about the episode and the show that you're listening to, as well as what we've talked about in episodes past 304 episodes in the past to be specific while you're there tps report you'll notice it in the navigation of the website click on that drop us your name and your email address and you will start getting exactly one email per week on monday mornings with just a few articles to uh to kick things off so hopefully you'll find that valuable we'd love for you to sign up for it Uh, we promise not to try to sell you anything it literally is just to send you a few resources as you get your week started. So we'll pause here again. Touchpoint.health is the website and then be back with today's show. Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors. Sure is. And Reed, consider this. 86% of patients today read online reviews and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating. Demand. They demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty. And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com slash touchpoint. That's reputation.com slash touchpoint, where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide and build a reputation 
that performs for you. So as you alluded to, Reed, today we're going to be talking about reputation and reputation management. This is not a topic that's new to us. We've mentioned it a number of times before. Yeah, I, we probably could have gone back and looked. But yeah, I mean, we've certainly talked about reputation, reputation management, stars and reviews. I know one of my favorite episodes is when we talked about HCAPs versus online reviews. I, I know that's come up several times as a popular episode. So um, yeah, we've talked about kind of topically this, this idea a few times. I think, though, in today's episode, we're going to get into some areas of reputation that we haven't touched on before. In particular, I look forward to an interview later on in the show with Dean Browell. It's really interesting. You'll really enjoy it. But before we get there, Reed, recently we covered findings from a report from StairCycle, if you recall. It was in one of our episodes a few episodes ago around communication and how we communicate better. They did a study that uh, asked over 1,000 patients what are some things that they're they're find lacking from their engagement with a hospital and healthcare system? And I enjoy going through these types of studies because it does. It gives you some good insight into either the market or the consumer or competitors, whatever it may be. So this was a this was an interesting one. But yeah, let's let's jump in and talk about these. Matt Dixon, who is Stericycle's uh, senior vice president, he actually highlighted three major findings that hospitals and health systems need to address. And so let's just quickly touch on all of those. The first is about getting a handle on post-ER communications. 90% of patients require follow-up care after they visit an emergency room, but the study said that only 34% of those patients received some kind of follow-up communication, and that was a pretty big gap. In fact, what Dixon said is that it's a huge gap where they're not getting the information they need to know the next most appropriate step to take in their healthcare journey. I mean, a lot of referrals just never get worked. So, I mean, it's not even about coming back, you know, or the readmission, you know, criteria and things like that. I think that is a piece of it, certainly. But this idea that 90% need to do something else and a third of those didn't get any direction. <laughs> around right so yeah that, that that's a huge gap huge gap uh next thing on the list talks about some of the self-service capability like uh scheduling so testing your appointment booking platform for usability another key takeaway from the report is less than half of patients less than half reported booking their doctor's appointments online however only about 54 percent of those would say that the experience was was easier easier to navigate Dixon says, right, there's a, there needs to be a renewed emphasis on learnability. But the third finding is really kind of the springboard in today's topic. Don't neglect your online reputation. More than half of survey respondents said that online reviews had a moderate to severe impact on their decision to visit a provider. And that increased to 72% among those aged 18 to 34. So reputation matters. Yeah, absolutely. He goes on to talk about the fact that providers put more energy into encouraging patients to leave reviews. When I think about online reviews and what he's talking about here on like kind of the proactive solicitation of reviews, it's probably not hard to imagine that left up to their own devices, what you're going to get is going to be negative, right? Because like, why else would you write a review? 
you have to give people and you have to make it easy for people to to leave feedback. And what we have found here at Ardent is that about nine out of 10 of those that we proactively ask to give us feedback, it's always positive, nine out of 10 times. But again, if nobody asks me, I'm probably not going to do it. The idea is like, don't neglect that, you know, because this is such a big deal, especially for the younger demographic he talks about. A lot of times we think about it in the old fashioned way. And so today we're going to explore this whole concept of reputation and how it impacts the brand on multiple levels. The first we're going to get into is just high level about reputation and brand. And we found an article on entrepreneur.com. I don't think I have any friends over there, Reed. Do you have any friends at entrepreneur.com? Mm, probably. Probably. <laughs> okay. So we'll say our friends at yeah. entrepreneur.com then. <laughs> and it's called the relationship between reputation and brand. Well, first point here, brand reputation. We hear that term a lot, right? Brand reputation is, they say, is the determining factor for what decides whether a consumer will pay and recruits will apply. So very simply, what the type of reputation that you have directly correlates with people's willingness to spend money with you or people to work there. So a different type of audience, one that we don't typically think about. The article goes on to say that in order to do that the right way, a brand that has a good reputation has to really embrace this as part of their DNA. It's a reflection of their products and services. And a, a bad reputation, a bad online reputation devalues the products and services that your organization provides. So in effect, the author of this article is kind of saying that how your brand reflects is actually a reflection of how you are inside. And there's an inextricable connection between those two. Well, I think one call out in here, which is kind of interesting, is the dichotomy between corporate image and brand reputation. Mm. Now, I don't know that I totally think there's a huge contrast between the two. I'm not entirely sure they're not the same thing, but that's irrelevant here. But he talks about the fact that brand reputation is owned by the public. And I do agree with that, right? Mm -hmm. So this idea that, you know, what the consumer thinks about you and a lot of what's driven, especially online about you, you don't, you don't own that. I think that's the scary part, right? This is where we get back to the real tactical stuff we used to see, like, you know, how do we erase this? How do you get this offline? Like, how do we take this review down? Mm -hmm. <laughs> kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. And it just becomes more and more of, like, guys, you don't understand. Like, we don't, we don't own that. And it's not that we don't own that Facebook, because we, we don't. We don't own Facebook. But it's like we don't own that reputation that way anymore. And that's why it's really important for us to develop what the article outlines as a reputational strategy. As our function as marketing communications kind of moves more toward being a reputation management function, and in particular, I see communications going that way, right? We, I hear people calling themselves now reputation managers, not communication managers. Mm. It's less often considered an exclusive part of the overall mix and it becomes increasingly infused in overall what you're doing from a marketing brand outreach perspective. They indicate here that a brand strategy model affects the nature of its corporate reputation. What does that mean, Reed? Well, they call it two different two different models, right? So a market-oriented 
which is the understanding of strategy that that ultimately produces a market oriented you know PR, if you will, and then a reputation and relationship oriented knowledge strategy, which will build reputation and relationship oriented PR. If I were to kind of put it in my own words or kind of synthesize this a little bit to at least the way I think about it is one, there's what we tell people about ourselves. And then there's the experiences that people share about us. So we tell people about us and people tell us about us. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Uh, It's kind of the way I think about it. So again, you, it's not that you don't do proactive PR and you, and you tell those stories and you work with the media and you get patient testimonials and that kind of stuff, but that used to be all there was. And even more so, a brand's culture hugely influences all aspects of your organization, strategy, implementation, reputation, performance. And because of this, brands should concentrate on building a great culture. I think we all understand that that's an important part of any DNA and it actually makes for a better experience. But the strategy should address reputation weaknesses through evolution, not revolution, in a goal to achieve understanding rather than adoration of the public, right? It's about using reputation as a way to slowly develop an understanding of and, a, and an evolution of your own brand. So to run out this article real quickly, uh, they call out four things, four key segments that might threaten your brand reputation. So maybe we rattle things real quick. Uh, the first one is the elements of the brand. So positioning of the brand in the marketplace, in the strengths and weaknesses of a brand. So, you know, where where is it in the marketplace? The example they give in here are market shares is, is relative to like favorability in the corporate sector. So the brand gets weaker depending on kind of like what the marketplace is doing. And then ultimately the strengths and weaknesses of the brand, if it can be distinguished or not at, at, a, at an extreme level that might make it a concern of like, you know, really, you know, how are you? Are you any better, you know, than than your competitors? That's really important to kind of cross-reference that within the context of, of your competitors. Another one is around the context of the crisis that your organization or your industry or the world might be in. And we, I think a lot about this, Reed, when it comes to us doing reputation management two, three years ago in the midst of the pandemic, as opposed to now. The intensity of whatever crisis situation is occurring it really reflects on your overall brand reputational approach. They have another example here, right? That, for example, if you find like, if you're a food product industry and you're finding that salmonella is, you know, leading to severe health problems or even death, that's a, that severity of that crisis greatly heightens your need to manage your reputation. I, again, back to the COVID days, right? Our reputation was under high scrutiny by our by the people in our in our market in our audiences because of how they interacted with us. As the situation abates, then your reputational strategies will be less impact. Third thing on the list they talk about are uh, the initiatives undertaken by a company. Really, anything that your organization does has an influence on the brand. A position you may take, uh, where you you know put your money what you advocate for or sponsor, you know, things like that, 
you know, we, we've seen a lot in this space, both with individuals and companies that have both hurt and helped their brands. But again, you know, initiatives undertaken by the company. Okay, lastly, to round it out, the fourth thing is the evaluation of the results. So measuring the efficiency of the work that you're doing. And this becomes important as like you're starting to measure the success through, let's say, things like rebranding or shifting in market share or industry changes, etc. Evaluating your results of your brand efforts, your brand reputational efforts is also important for context, right? And this is these four segments, key segments, are the ways that you could keep ahead of managing your own brand reputation. Now we'll take a break here, Reed. And when we come back, let's talk a little bit about this whole concept of corporate reputation and how it's almost become the currency for companies to succeed. But we'll do that right after this brief pause. Coming soon from Greystone, Bowstring and Touchpoint Media, live from HCIC, a new podcast that brings you front row access to the latest innovative strategies that are shaping tomorrow's healthcare industry. In this 12-part series, as recorded live at the Healthcare Internet Conference, we'll hear from industry experts such as Paul Madsen of the Cleveland Clinic, Kathy Smith of Roper St. Francis Healthcare, David Feinberg from Mount Sinai Health System, Rose Glenn from Michigan Medicine, and many others. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast series is brought to you by Greystone.net, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media. Last thing we'll touch on here is a article that you found over on LinkedIn uh, titled 2022, Look Ahead, How Corporate Reputation Has Become Currency for Companies to Succeed. So this was a, a blog written by uh, Corrine Winters. Uh, mm-hmm. she- the uh, chief strategy officer at MWW. So again, we'll, we'll link to this. She does a good job of calling out a couple of things that organizations can do and that, you know, all, you know, what we've talked about up to this point, certainly, Chris, is that, that reputation really does provide you know, business value, right? Like this isn't like a nice to have, you know, kind of a thing, right? So we'll go through these four points that she calls out and how ultimately, you know, doing these things does ultimately, you know, provide, provide that value. Sure. So the first thing that she kind of outlines is that there is a need now to modernize uh, the C-suite. The whole concept of like the C, the CEO and the rest of the C-suite are isolated from the corporate brand, that's that's not true anymore. Business executives must be the company and the brand's global ambassadors. And to that end, you know, it's not only to the consumers, it's also to the employees. We always knew the CE, C-suite kind of guided the employees, but now it's actually cascading into the consumer marketplace too. The modern executive, she writes has to embody the daily workplace and be a force of equity and social good. And that includes like connecting to a personal level for those people that are not only working within their company, but outside, right? The community. And this is really an emerging trend. The next thing she calls out, uh, which is interesting, is uh, she calls it the uh, borderless influence of business. Certainly the CEO's role is involving, uh, but so is the actual place, the, the corporate the entity kind of plays in our, in our fabric. And so 
marketing, branding, it was very much about selling product. She argues in here that it's becoming a vessel, as she puts it, for social messaging. So more than ever, employers continue to hold a sacred position of trust, guiding employees on issues, responsible for mental health and advocating for issues that matter most in our world. And so, you know, how should a company navigate these expectations? Where's the line between business and society? She says, or even is there a line anymore? We see this a lot now. You see a celebrity that does something stupid, says something stupid, and then you have a bunch of entities that divorce themselves from that person because they don't align with their belief system anymore, potentially. Right. I, the first one that came to mind, uh, as I just thought about it, I was trying to think back. Well, actually, I could go back to OJ, but yeah, <laughs> we'll, we'll skip ahead a little bit. And I think about Lance Armstrong, right? When he uh, sat down with Oprah and made these omissions, and then you know, all these corporate entities jumped ship. Now, you can argue on whether or not that made sense or not. Then you think about the Colin Kaepernick stuff, or most recently with Kanye West, you know, and, and Adidas and some of the stuff. So anyway, there, there, there's no there's no sh- shortening of, of of opportunities to look at. But you know, what does really the role of the entity or the brand play in this? So anyway, it's an interesting thing to kind of think through. The third aspect of some of what she points out here is that because of understanding this new role of not only the C-suite but also your company. You now have to start defining your impact. Companies are going to have to look deeper at just not not only their national impact or their local impact, but even international at times. Mm. And also what's felt at that grass level, and this is beyond the products and services that they provide, businesses, and particularly I would argue that health systems and hospitals you really have to consider the, you know, the the impact that you have as a business to each and every employee that works for you, as well as the community that you're based in. There's no room here now for these sort of empty promises. Consumers and employees demand that you have to be more transparent, you have to define your impact, and you have to show the action that you do. I guess it's good that in our industry, we do a lot of community impact statements every year because we're actually kind of ahead of the game in this regard. Last thing we'll point out here that that she points to is the workplace. (laughs) Well, she says reputation litmus test. Uh, (laughs) Workplace is a, is brand value. So Mm -hmm. 2022, I'd argue into 2023, we can expect that the talent issue, she says, particularly attraction and retention efforts to be complex as ever. So uh, with prospects and current employees looking far beyond compensation, 401k, Etc. The employer brand has become the topic of boardrooms and, and brainstorms, as she puts it. So, this is interesting. Is getting paid more is that important? I mean, at some point, it is. Somebody wants to pay you half a million dollars a year versus fifty thousand dollars a year. Well, most people will probably suck it up for, for at least a year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. You know? mm-hmm. So. But knowing that, like, we think about nursing, you know, and the nursing shortage. And, you know, we used to always talk about nurses would go across the street for a couple of dollars an hour. I wonder if that's still the case. That certainly is something that we all in hospital boardrooms, in executive level meetings, et cetera, we're all considering that now and being very cognizant of the fact because of the workplace challenges that we're all facing. 
I think it certainly is something that we're, we're starting to look at is like, what are those drivers? What are those motivators that are allowing employees to make decisions and opting into our, to work with our organization as a brand culture? What is that reputation litmus test, if I could borrow her phrase? And this kind of leads nicely, Reed, to an interview I recently had with Dean Browell. Many of you may know Dean. He's been kind of a you know big in the big online. He's also very involved in in Shishmid and other conferences that are out there. You you, you probably have known him, seen him, watched him present at one point. He and I sat down to talk a little bit about reputation and social listening, and the way he works with organizations to use those very tools that we've been doing for measuring you know customers, etc., as a way to understand employees find maybe these kind of latent clues as to why employees are working with us and using that to help support retention efforts. It was an interesting conversation and I encourage you all to listen to it. We'll do it right after this brief pause and then you and I will be back ready to close out the show. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome back to the Ask the Expert segment of the podcast, and today I am excited to have someone on the show. Dean, I have known you for a very long time, and I am surprised it's taking you this long to get on our show, but I'm happy you're here. Dean, welcome. Thanks so much. Great to be here. Well, I'm excited with our conversation today, but before we jump into the topic at hand, I'd always like to give people that I'm I'm talking to an opportunity to introduce themselves to our audience, so you could share a little bit about your background, maybe, and where you work and what you do. You bet. So I'm Dean Browell. I'm the Chief Behavioral Officer at Feedback, which is a fun title uh, all on its own. <laughs> uh, we've been at this for about 13 years, but the uh, the real grist of what the company does is based off of uh, work that I did in my, my PhD work, actually, in a, applying ethnography in an online space. I really fell in love with it as a uh, as a research technique, and also my backgrounds in generational differences. So that'd be the other other way that people might know me is from the book, uh, Don't You Forget About Gen X, that I wrote with uh, Alan Chubridge and Dan Myers. Yeah, Alan has been on the show before, but and that's a great book, by the way. So highly recommended for those people listening in. We'll put a link in the show notes for that. But Dean, today, as you indicated, right, you're in this as an extension of some of the work that you've done. We're going to get into a topic that really uh, is very topical in today's day and age for hospitals and health systems that that are listening in, which is using some of those digital tools that we as uh, traditional digital marketers have used maybe in other capacities to solve different business challenges. And I think one of the biggest business challenges we're facing in hospitals and health systems lately is around this concept of understanding employees and understanding employee retention. So why don't we get started with Uh, you know, just your general perspective on this. Yeah, absolutely. So it's interesting because I think you're exactly right that people, the the energy and the tools that we used to look at consumers, to listen to consumers and different, different external stakeholders and audiences, we often don't turn 
uh, towards our, our employees and in turn towards our company culture, right, in any in any kind of respect. And so I think one thing that, that the pandemic has shown us, first off, is the, the voices that are out there include our, our employees and include the clinicians, include different staff. And I think that that in itself is a bit of a wake-up call because one thing that happened in the pandemic was, for example, seeing the, the nurse, right? The nurse who lives on your street, everyone knows that he or she is a nurse. And, you know, you might do everything from, you know, thank you for your service to, does this look infected, right? And they're sort of the town nurse. Well, when they start expressing their opinions about how the hospital they work for, you know, their opinions around how they're uh, conducting themselves as a hospital or as an entity or choices they're making, or even just about burnout in general, it's affecting the public eye. And I think that's what first brought people to the idea that, yes, this is something we could potentially track the same way we're tracking other things, but it's not just about crisis. Using these kind of tools just to understand the where where your employees are at, how they're talking about what it's like to work there. Uh, and I think it can cover lots of different angles, both from a recruitment, retention, DEI, you know, how does representation actually look when they're reviewing what it's like to work there? It's, it can just really cover so many different, so many different angles. Well, you know, Dean, I'm going to address the gorilla in the room right in the front here. When you talk about employers using digital tools to listen in on their employees, that sounds a little ominous. <laughs> I mean, doesn't it? I mean, if you think about it, you know, uh, it raises a red flag or two around organi- with, with many people, particularly if you're working for an organization. But what you're talking about is not so much in a punitive way, but it's more of like using it as a way to inform where your organization is at in the community. Is that a fair way to, to pr- put it? Yeah, it is. It, the way I would also just really characterize it is, and and I can only really speak to the way that feedback does things, is that we take an ethnographic angle on public discussion. So in other words, this isn't about hacking into a group of people. This is about understanding what people are saying unprompted amongst their peers publicly, and then how is that influencing other folks? So this includes reviews they post on Glassdoor, Right. Reviews they might post on Google or on other other many, many of the other review locations, but also things like student doc. And and there's lots of communities for nurses that are out there that are very public. And it's not about punitively listening to uh, to be able to really go after somebody, because first off, they're often much smarter than that. And there's anonymity involved here, but also the fact that in some cases, they're complaining very openly with the hopes that someone will will hear it and make substantial change. So it's really also about, especially if they're influencing public perception outside of just their peers, you want to know what what it is that's out there and to really understand what they're at. Because first off, in, in some of the examples that we've seen in the last couple of years, I mean, in one particular case, we were able to detect a nurse burnout in the state of Iowa far earlier than when most people started talking about burnout generally in hospitals. I mean, this was like August of 2020. To be able to see signs of that and to be able to see how that um, might play out and be able to detect that, I think is really, I mean, that's that's a real gift to understand your employees. Another example I would give is, is through DIA, which is not just what wonderful, very proud of yourselves statement that you might have put out about DIA, but rather how is representation actually look when your employees are talking. Are all of your glass door reviews from cis white males? Uh, are, you know, when someone who you are recruiting, what do they see 
from others, from, from their would-be peers of what it's like to work there, what representation really looks like. I mean, understanding that is a crucial additional piece of the puzzle. And I just lastly say that we so often, I think internally, and this is to your point earlier about all the tools we use to listen and, and, and you know learn about audiences externally, from an internal standpoint, we get very comfortable with just looking at the employee survey that's done once a year. Um, and that is a lagging indicator. First off, you don't even often see it until it's after, you know, maybe six months since it was first fielded. To wait that long to understand that there are some issues, whether those are operational ones or messaging ones that could be addressed, I think is a real is a real problem. You know, as you're describing this, Dean, it's interesting because I'm, I can't help but in my mind make a parallel around how we, from an external perspective, use the way people write online reviews about their care experience with our health systems and kind of the comparison between Yelp scores and HCAP scores. It feels almost identical. And I, you do want to use surveys as a tool, but you also want to re- use reviews as another way to get that insight. This sounds very similar to me, just for a different audience. Absolutely. You know, my, my favorite my favorite soapbox to, uh, to get on top of lately is uh, like MPS scores. A survey will be great at telling me, would you recommend this brand? The missing piece of the puzzle is, do you? Mm. I think that's what we need to ask, not just about those external audiences, but those internal ones as well. The, is there a gap between what is said when prompted on a survey or any, how, whatever that collection technique is versus what they say to peers unprompted? And the bonus of that is what's informing other people who are looking in. And so, again, it's not I think it's absolutely about both, but it's about getting that complete picture so that you know exactly the shape and scope uh, of any particular issues or opportunities that you might have. My mind went to Schrodinger's cat too there for a second, but still, uh, you know, but, uh, but I hear what you're saying exactly, right? It's, 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 it's a completely different type of data and insight that you can garner from these unsolicited external conversations that are being had about your organization, about your brand or, or what have you. But I'm still kind of curious, are you using like your your company's brand? I'm familiar with things like Glassdoor and other places, right, where they, they write reviews about your company, but that I would almost consider a lagging indicator too. How do you do this? Yeah, so for us, I mean, we, we apply really a behavioral science eye and we use an anthrop- anthropological techniques to first find the right channels. I mean, whether they're local nursing groups where uh, those nurses are complaining about everything from, you know, perhaps uh, the travel nurse who's making three times as much as them who works beside them, or they might be talking about that annoying doc on floor three, looking at those kinds of groups where we can really get a sense and understand what, you know, both their perception of a brand, of competitors, of a facility. Um, It could also include forums and message boards for sure other places where they might not leave formal reviews, but might be telling their stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and increasingly, actually, Reddit is a massive place, not just wow. for localized elements, but also even national conversations. And I should also just point out, we fish anywhere the fish are. So another one that really has come to uh, sort of come on its own in the last several years is TikTok. Not just the videos. I mean, yes, the videos are a part of that, but it's the comments in the videos. That's what we're seeing. The nurse who is potentially, for example, as I actually saw one just last night in one of our research uh, elements where it was a nurse shaming another nurse for making a video about a noisy patient. 
And that nurse who did a reaction video was talking all about how she found out where this nurse worked and this publicly shaming her. And then in the comments, nurses who work with that shamed nurse showed up in the comments. That entire element might be playing out and playing out for nurses in that area to see. Is that even something that the, that the institution is even aware of? Hmm. Uh, and so, I mean, even something like that, which may may seem like it's, you know, it, it may, you may feel, oh, it may just be tangential. Maybe not that many people see it. That's where the challenge would be to understand, you know, thousands of people had already seen those videos, both the reaction video and the original, you know, not to mention in, in some cases, thousands of comments. So it, it can get, it's a qualitative research technique, but it actually gets pretty quantitative pretty fast when you're talking about the visibility uh, of some of these uh, conversations and, and opinions too. Well, you blew my mind in two ways right now, Dean. First of all, that insight that you could gather that much data from that kind of interactivity and use that in a, in a really powerful way, that's really mind-blowing unto itself. The second way that you blew my mind is you actually outlined a very good use case of TikTok in healthcare. I think you're the first person on our on our show to ever do that. So <laughs> congratulations, kudos to you for that. But nonetheless, I'm curious about that, right? I'm curious about now that you gather this data, I think many of us listening in are wondering like, so then what do you do with that? How do you start to synthesize and draw insights from that data? Because to me, it sounds like it's like kind of like the Wild West out there. Yeah, it, it is the Wild West. And that, that's where it really, that's, that's our job to, to really understand that. We break our, our research really down into two or three different processes. The first one is what we call discovery. And I know that that word gets thrown around a lot, especially when you're you know talking about everything from building websites to other elements. But for us, discovery means understanding the channels that matter where these audiences are talking. So it's really about uh, that discovery about those audiences. And then we prioritize those channels. And then we go in and, you know, like Jane Goodall, we go in and live among the chimps, right? And, and, and really understand and observe and look at the language they're using. That's, again, whether we're talking internal or external audiences, this is huge, right? Because that may even affect what search terms that you want to buy uh, in terms of from a recruitment standpoint. Um, when we're doing this for... I'd say, you know, ex typical service line type healthcare, you know, we're looking at, for example, the treatment journeys, you know, and the condition specific message boards where, you know, they're talking uh, about all kinds of things. In fact, there's another use case for TikTok there. We were actually recently doing some uh, work on obscure sort of rare immunodeficiency diseases. And uh, there's an entire TikTok things of teens talking about how they do their infusions at home. Mm. And other teens who have the same issue are, commiserating on there. Oh, that's how you do this one kind of infusion. I'm hoping to be able to get that in my treatment. I mean, it's fascinating, but we do have to make sense of all that and categorize that. Sometimes that's by persona, right? If there's like different types of folks that we're focusing on. And sometimes we let the behavior categorize it. And that's where it then takes a, that third step is really that deeper analysis or so that discovery, then sort of the mining where we're really in there and, and understanding and collecting examples. And then last but not least, the analysis. And I should point out too, this is the way we do it. When we collect our examples, we actually anonymize them. We do a lot of work both with healthcare. We do a lot of work also on the government side. And so we've learned a long time ago that when we do our, we code our behavior that we're finding, we anonymize it. And that immediately takes out that, that fear of retribution. 
And that way we're just looking at it for what it is, how people self-identify, you know, so we can say, oh, this is someone who's worked there for five years. You know, we could see what facility they might work at. We, we can tick those boxes on the coding, but that way we're, we're not handing anybody any keys to go, uh, you know, from retribution standpoint. Yeah, I'm glad you you stated that at the end, because that was the thing that was in the back of my mind was thinking, wait a second, this data could be very powerfully used in other capacities. But in this particular case, that anonymization is critically important. And again, it reminds me a lot of how we use other tools, uh, data tools, data collection tools, and methods to sort of track our patient behavior. It's very similar, creating persona types, creating, you know, creating behavioral types to really create propensity models, so to speak, of trends that you're seeing in the marketplace. So I'm really curious, can you share with us some use cases in which you were able to find some interesting things? So we have used them, I'd say just broadly on company culture. And I mean that also meaning like system culture. So that's actually probably a really great example where we can really take a look at you know, how are all the different facilities that make up a system, how are they all perceived and talked about by these different ent- entities? You know, general staff, clinicians, is, is it different between physicians and nurses? And then looking at sort of the forest from the trees on the system to say, look, here's where there's inconsistencies. Someone looking on the outside in, a new recruit, whatever that case may be, maybe a, a physician that you're trying to bring over from outside, you know, here's what that looks like. The other thing we've looked at from a recruitment standpoint, I mean, this is kind of a fascinating, like almost a whole other element, is when newcomers in healthcare uh, are moving to the area, who do they talk to and what do they receive in terms of advice? And what's really fascinating about this with physicians is we've done this even for rural uh, hospitals who have a hard time recruiting physicians, looking at how do physicians, what are the persona types? of the physician who wants and seeks rural hospital work. Hmm. And being able to look at, and just to, as a spoiler alert, one thing we found in one of our studies in, in, in the Midwest was how in many cases, these are younger docs who have done mission work related to their church in the past. And they like being the quote unquote town doc. And so they see taking positions in, they're in fact eager for them in sometimes more rural areas because they feel as a little bit of of a connectivity to what they've done in the past and that kind of giving back feeling. But what's interesting is, of course, not all docs fall into that Um, and trying to figure out where those particular docs are talking. The other element, which is always funny, is even boards like city data, which is kind of a very generic geographically centered message board but it's where a lot of newcomers go. People who move into an area that say, hey, what are schools like? Every now and then you'll get in an area where a physician goes on there and says, I'm an ortho doc. And they will will not give who their name is. They won't talk about where they're looking to work, but they're, I'm an ortho doc. And I'm thinking, I want to live this far out from a city. I want these amenities. And it's fascinating. You get enough of those in an area, you can really start to see what's important to these docs when they're just sort of fishing around trying to figure out where to move. So there's lots of little use cases and we get uh, the, the, we get accused of being Frank's hot sauce sometimes. Of, you know, <laughs> once, you, once you use us on one thing that you go, oh, whoa, I, can you find out about X? And usually the answer is yes. Uh, so there's lots of little use cases. Yeah, I can imagine. So you just extended not only from a retention perspective, but now you're getting into the recruitment areas and I could see how that kind of can spread throughout 
the organization. So when you work with hospitals and health systems, is it typically the HR teams that you work with? or Because to me, it sounds this could be very valuable from a physician recruitment perspective, from a clinical staff management perspective. There, there are a variety of, of uh, stakeholders within a health system that might find this data useful. You're absolutely right. And, and the answer is all of the above. So, you know, sometimes we'll come in through Marcom because that's really where we, we cut our teeth, right, was really doing that from the external. But a lot of the Marcom folks have now suddenly become in charge of internal communications. And they have some of them have very new sort of charters that, that include some of these elements or taking over even recruitment messaging. And so that's where we originally started, but we are, in, especially in the last two or three years, working directly with HR in many cases as well. So it, it can it can be all of the above. We also can work with, we've worked with different physician groups. We've even worked with site selection folks who are looking from an M&A perspective and wanting to know what kind of reputation they're getting themselves into. It's really all of the above. And the, la- the one thing I'll add to that too is sometimes we get asked, we get brought in to look at competitors. So it's not even just about looking at your own employee culture or, you know, recruitment or retention, but but also doing a landscape to say, what's your number two, number three, number one competitors? You know, what where are they at? You know, what are, what are some opportunities, you know, in messaging to go after their folks so that we don't keep losing people to them? You know, this kind of reinforces to me something that Reed and I have been talking about for years. And obviously, I, I feel in my DNA as well, is that digital really can be the the glue, really, that can weave, or maybe glue is not the right metaphor here, but the digital tools can be used throughout various different parts of the business to provide great insight and great understanding of your audiences. And if, if anything, I think the superpower of using tools such as your social listening tools and other things that you use at your disposal can become that Frank's hot sauce, not only in the fact that you could use it everywhere, but also it's that little secret special sauce, right? That give it an extra bit of a advantage or edge that you have in, in, in a community. To me, it's like my mind's being opened up in so many different ways. And a lot of organizations are now working with directly with hospitals and recruitment and retention perspectives. For those of them that don't maybe don't have access to all the tools that you have, can you give them a bit of advice? Honestly, this is some of the same advice I'd even give a very bigger organization, because I think the problem with the large organizations is that they often feel like they've already checked this box because they've operationalized, for example, oh yeah, we have someone who responds to all our reviews, you know, internal or external, whoever leaves a review anywhere, right? Well, that operationalizing of that is great, but that doesn't mean you've taken, you've looked at that forest from the trees angle to actually understand what this means on a strategic level. And so when talking to then even, you know, from a smaller entity standpoint, it's sort of that same thing. Just knowing that you've occasionally browsed through your reviews is a little different. What I would suggest is first, I think it's almost sort of do your own mini research project in the sense of take a day where all you're doing is finding out where do people talk about you? And then once you earmark those things and look at look at it from both a review standpoint and just a discussion standpoint, earmark those and make it so that every, you know, maybe it's every month you carve out some time to go in and even just browse. Because I am I imagine you will at the very least get some sense of what the local culture is like for this type of job that you're looking at, whether it's physicians, whether it's nurses, whether it's just in general healthcare in your region. And it may look a little different than what you've been told internally. 
uh, you know, than what might shows up on a survey. And that'll give you some indication of there's there's something here for us to dig at. And I, I should also point out, this is, you know, I always say this. So uh, this is another one of the things people will have heard me say probably before, but zero is a data point. If you don't find people talking, that's notable. Because if you don't have people also endorsing you, talking about what it's like to work there, that means you are leaving that zero there for others to find also. And that might even come in the sense of maybe you find a lot of nurses talking, but no physicians, or maybe it's only one kind of nurse, but you notice that say cardiac or one of these other service lines is completely absent from discussions. That means that if you're recruiting someone, they don't see themselves in the discussion and the reviews either. So that might mean an opportunity for testimonials or other, you know, there's other things you might do to kind of fill in that that gap. But don't sleep on the gaps. The gaps are just as important as what people are actually talking about. Wow. Those are those are some good, strong words and 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 a great way to kind of wrap up this conversation. But before we end the conversation, is there anything left that might be a good tidbit for our audience? I would just add that looking at everything together is also important. I think often we think, especially prior to COVID, we often treated internal and external audiences as if they were like two different aliens on two different planets. And I think one thing that the pandemic has taught us, or at least taught many of us who had to kind of go through the crucible of realizing how how much the general public was paying attention to internal audiences when they spoke, this is all part of your brand you need to know both. You don't, you shouldn't just silo them. Siloing them is, is sort of like, you know, when you, you step out of the car and you've just heard it, a radio ad for a product, you go into your house and you have a direct mail for that product. You go online and you also get an ad for that product. Like that's the best day for the marketing manager of that product is to know that they've hit you three different ways in that, in that same thing. And what they, what you're hoping is that you don't notice that the people who make the direct mail made the, uh, radio spot and made that digital ad are from three different companies. They, they don't want you to notice that. But the same thing is true in terms of our audiences uh, when we look at internal and external. If we treat them as silos, we're pretending that they don't know that the other one is there. And the public very much knows that clinicians are having a hard time right now. And the clinicians know that the public's looking at them. Having that understanding what that impact is on the total brand is is another is just I think that's another thing to keep in mind that that they aren't siloed for the public. You know, I know people listening in are fascinated by what you're saying and probably want to extend the conversation to you online. What are some ways that they can after this after they hear this interview can reach out to you? Absolutely. So discoverfeedback.com. Uh, all, all together there. Uh, discoverfeedback.com online is where you can find us. Uh, I'm easy. I'm dean at discoverfeedback.com. And uh, I'm very easy to find on LinkedIn because there's uh, there's not that many brawls. So dean brawl on, uh, on LinkedIn is great too. Well, we're going to link to all of that in the show notes. So people listening in, be sure to click through to the show notes so you can connect with Dean. Dean, thanks for your time today. It's been a great conversation. I really, really appreciate uh, our time today. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. It's great. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. 
special thanks to Dean for coming on the show. I certainly appreciate his insight and um, willingness to come on and chat for a little bit. So, man, here we are getting towards the end of another year. Um, so excited to have some of our end of year wrap up episodes coming. So keep an eye out for that. But again, quick plug for the website, touchpoint.health and signing up for the TPS report. We'll have kind of our end of year survey and all that kind of fun stuff plugged in there as well. But before we wrap up for today, uh, let's do a couple of recommendations. What do you got? Sure, Reed. Um, you know, as we're thinking about coming up on the end of the year, I started thinking about we're going to have a big milestone in our household. And by the end of the year, we should have a new person coming into our into our home and living with us. And so in future episodes, you may hear a little bit of a little crying noise in the background. We know what that is. Little baby boy is coming. I don't know if many of you know, but I'm bilingual. I speak German as well as English. I was raised in a German-speaking household, so I could speak German. And uh, as we were talking about our, our newborn, my wife asked me to teach our, our new boy German, which, of course, my immediate reaction was like, of all languages to teach, German, really? Nonetheless, my recommendation is if you speak uh, a second language or even a third language or a fourth language... I encourage you to to share with others that language, particularly people in your household or maybe your friends or family, maybe share some experiences that you have. And if you're really interested and you have some free time, download like Babelfish or Duolingo and take it upon yourself to learn a new language because it's just a lot of fun. So my recommendation, Reed, in a very roundabout way is uh, learn and speak a different language. It's a great recommendation. I'm sure there's a lot of well-meaning folks, but as we're coming up on New Year's resolutions, like you can just slot that one right in. So there you go. <laughs> um, I'm going to recommend also something relatively generic. Uh, well, it'll be specific and generic. This weekend, uh, this past weekend, it, it really cooled off quite a bit here in Nashville, uh, and the weather wasn't great. You know, it's kind of rainy, cold, you know, that kind of thing. So. You, couldn't get out and do a whole lot. And um, so, of course, we watched a lot of football, which was great. But then on Sunday afternoon, decided to watch a movie or two and just kind of got on a little bit of a kick. But of course, the holiday movies pop up on the screen when you open up, you know, whatever, Netflix or Hulu or Prime or something. And we watched Home Alone. And so that's hard to beat. So that's kind of my recommendation is partially Home Alone, but also just... You know, this is a good opportunity to, to kick off some of those holiday movies uh, that everybody likes. So we watched The Polar Express. Another favorite of mine, Prep and Landing. Man, that's a good one. I think that's a Disney thing, maybe, that's uh, an animated piece. But anyway, uh, so uh, go ahead. Here's your permission uh, to, uh, to go ahead and start watching holiday movies. So there you go. There you go. You're just one step away, Reed, of uh, starting to binge all of the Hallmark holiday movies, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, they're all the same. So you really just have to watch them. Anyway. All right. Well, thanks, everybody. We certainly appreciate it and uh, love the support, love the feedback. Reach out. Twitter, LinkedIn is probably the best way to do that. We'd love to know if there's topics uh, that are top of mind for you or people we should have on the show. But we can make that happen. So, uh, Reach out. Love to see you. Chris Boyer, Reed Smith, and we'll see you next week. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.